Good morning. Hi. If you are here today, you have to finish that statement. If I just say if you are here today, it really sounds stupid. If you are here today, and at some point you have questions, we have this card. It says stake in the ground. It's our connecting card. If you have questions about anything, something I say, something that happens, you're just wondering, who did that artwork? Anything. Uh, how do I get connected here? Put your information down on here and tell us how you want us to contact you, whether it's email or carrier pigeon or, you know. Now, we'll even mail stuff to you if you want. It's quaint. But <coughs> email or cell phone, whatever you want, we'll, um, we'll get in touch with you. Today we move into the second week of the three-part series called A Stake in the Ground. And they are t a short cut to what I mean, but that's three things that, that I'm willing to put a stake in the ground over that I think are really important. Uh, perhaps there are things often, too, that we think we already have uh, believed and followed well, and yet I think they, we're waffly on these things. And so three things that are not the only three things I'm certain about. There's, there's a few more anyway. But here are three things I'm absolutely convinced about and, and I will, would be willing to go to the mat for. And I think they're at the core, not at the, not at the edges, at the core of what it means to, to follow Christ. And so today it's a voice for the voiceless, um, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. Now, I want you to understand this again. I think this is at the core of our faith. It's not the edges. It's not a, hey, that's a cute little accessory, like a nice handbag. It's at the very center, essential to Christianity, is we speak for those who can't speak for themselves. We fight for those who can't fight for themselves. And so today, as we, as we move into that, um, the band's going to do a song by the De Decemberists. And if you're not familiar with the Decemberists, Decemberists are an, an indie rock band that they're, they're, uh, I, I like them a lot, but they write um, lyrics at a relatively high level, you know, C compares their lyrics with, oh, really any classic rock band, who, and, and you discover it's a whole different level of writing. Uh, and in this, uh, in this song, uh, they, they, it, it there's a tension. Uh, the, the song gives it one, one picture, which is the neighbor's blessed burden within reason, becomes a burden born of all in one. It's that idea that, hey, we're all in this together. Let's bear one another's burdens. But then it has this, it almost like it comes back from it at a point where it's like, but, as, you know, as much as you can do. But we're all in this together. We bear each other's burdens. But, you know, within reason. That's, they, they, they play with that tension that all of us feel about, oh, I, I ought to do something, but what, what about me? Within reason, what's, what's my limits? And so today, that, among other questions, we'll explore as we talk about what it means to be a voice for the voiceless. Welcome to Warehouse. So, Martin Luther was kind of a big deal. I mean, when you get like an entire denomination named after you, seriously, you did something right. I mean, 300 years from now, we have Marcionism, one that's, that's scary. I, I understand that. But also, seriously, you know, you had a whole denomination named after you. That's kind of a big deal. He also, you know, if you look, look him up, and you'll, you'll discover that he's one of the leading figures of an entire historical era. The Reformation, again, a big deal. And, and he was courageous, and he was bold. He was also, shall we say, eccentric. Read that crazy. He did bizarre things. Some of them, I don't know, they might be, you know, the Reformation version of urban legend, but apparently, there's just, there's no delicate way to say this, 
apparently Martin Luther um, passed gas a lot. And he believed, rumor has it, he believed it warded off evil spirits. <laughs> Wish I were kidding. He also, apparently, as history tells it, during the mad and crazy, divisive discussions over the Lord's Supper, you heard me right, mad, crazy, decisive disagreements over the Lord's Supper, right, you know, the bread and the wine, between him, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, you know, as they were having these wild discussions, apparently, Martin Luther jumped up, grabbed a knife, and carved into the table, this is my body. To which Calvin said, chill, Marty, seriously, it's the Lord's Supper. But seriously, he grabbed a knife. Can you imagine you're sitting, you're having a discussion, and he comes out with a knife, and you already know, he thinks flatulence wards off evil spirits, so you don't know what's coming, and he carves into the table. Martin Luther had a problem, apparently, with dining services, but also, more to the point, with the book of James, what we're going to look at today. He called it a right strawy epistle, which apparently in the 1600s in Europe was a really bad thing. He called it a right strawy epistle, something that if he could, he would have taken that very same knife and cut out of his Bible. I disagree with Martin Luther on any number of things, from his views of exorcism to his views of the book of James. You see, I kind of understand why he felt the way he did. This is Martin Luther's story. He was um, zealous. A monk who was zealous for her faith. And in the culture in which he lived, one of the things that was being taught relentlessly was that you earn your way to God. You gotta, you gotta be good. You gotta be, and, and for any sins that you commit, you must personally atone. And so Martin Luther was zealous. And he, he, would, he would flail himself in order to punish himself for the sins that he had committed and wondered if, if there's any I haven't done. Maybe I should punish myself for those too because certainly my own understanding of my sin is flawed as well. And so in that context, when Martin Luther discovered the true core of biblical teaching, which is that it's grace, that you don't earn anything from God, that it's given to you, that a relationship with God is a free gift because of the death of Jesus, he understandably pushed hard against anything that seemed to teach otherwise. And so he came across the book of James, and because it has passages which seem to be saying, you know, y'all better, you know, get it going, get your act together, and, and start working on these practical, down-to-earth ways of living out your faith, Luther bristled. I think what he, what he missed, and uh, let, let me be fair, I'm pretty sure Luther got more things than I ever will, but one of the things I think he missed in looking at the book of James, and it's understandable given, given his culture and his background, what he missed was that James isn't, if you look through it, it's, it's, it's essentially speaking to a group of people that believe the gospel, believe that there is a Savior, believe that we enter a relationship with God through grace, but they weren't living it out very well. And so what James does is he sort of cuts to the chase. And James is the half-brother of Jesus, by the way. He sort of cuts to the chase, and he goes to the actions. He said, look, a follower of Jesus, this is the way it's supposed to look. You're supposed to do this. This is what comes out of your life. This is the natural outflow. And so it focuses on the external action and the call to live that way, and it assumes certain things. Right? Grace is the foundation of it. Anyway, in that understanding, we're going to look at really half a verse in the book of James. That's how laser-focused his teaching is. That's how much he hones in on very practical applications of something. We're going to look essentially at half a verse. I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're only going to focus on half of it, and this is what it says. 
in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their misfortune and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Okay, I'm going to actually walk through this half verse about a word at a time and just sort of build to what I think in the end James is saying and what he's calling us to. And it begins with, he says, pure and undefiled religion. Now, pure, often the reason why I break this down, the difference between, well, languages, any languages, is that they have different words, obviously. But whereas English may translate a word this way, another language would have several different words, and we're translating them all the same way. And so sometimes it's helpful to see. So in that culture and in that language, what, what does this word look like? Pure. Pure in this context refers to clean. In other words, it refers to something that was dirty. It's, it's not something in its original state. It's saying something that was dirty but has now had that washed off, that's had the dirt taken off of it. Often the honest truth is we confuse the dirt for the real thing. And so what James says is, okay, the pure and undefiled religion, okay, religion without anything added on to it, with the stuff taken off of it, an undefiled religion, and, and that really means to be free from that which impairs it. So, religion, which has been purified. Okay, let's, let's get rid of all the nonsense. Okay, let's get rid of anything extraneous that doesn't really belong to it. And let's get rid of that which impairs it, which, which hampers it, which holds it back. Which There's a whole range of things you could go with just on that. Pure and undefiled religion. We often bask, bash the concept of religion. We say, no, it's not about religion. But really, religion in this context, all it means is this, external practice. The external practice of a life that's connected with God. External religious practice. So, to summarize, James says, external religious practice, the outworking of our faith that doesn't have, or it has washed off it the things that clung to it, which are not it, which has removed from it that which impairs the living out our external religious practice is this. So, the heart of what it looks like to live out our faith is this. Now, he has a little phrase in between that, though. Before he says this, he says, before God the Father. And essentially, he could be saying, look, I mean, I'm only saying what God says. You know, I mean, there might be other people who view this differently. I'm, I'm aware of that. And so I'm not, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with what the commentators said. I'm only saying pure, pure faith, pure action out of faith in God's sight, that's sort of the conversation, Andrew, you know, at the dinner table, you're discussing this, and he says, well, I'm not only saying this, this is what God says about it, you know. This is what it is. So as you can see, why James is in many ways so compelling, he just gets to the point quickly. External religious practice that's free from impairment, that has washed up with those things we confuse with the real thing but are not. In God's sight, is this, to care for orphans and widows and their misfortune. Orphans and widows in that culture, you must under, if we don't understand this, we'll miss something about it. You have to understand what it meant to be an orphan and widow in that culture. This is why understanding any writing, any, any speech in its culture and its time is so important, because this orphan and widow would have communicated a certain thing. And in that culture, to be an orphan and to be a widow meant so several things. It meant your life took a disastrous turn through no fault of your own and there was nobody to stand up for you. If someone was an orphan in that culture, 
They had no parents and no backup. If someone was a widow in that culture, a woman whose husband died had nothing. They had no backup. And so what it meant, to be blunt, is somebody who was an orphan and a widow in that culture, if somebody didn't help, they would die. Now, nobody had to help. It, it's, it's like math. It's, it's not right or wrong. In a certain, it's just the way it was. If somebody didn't help, they were going to die. That's, that, that's the bottom line. Through no fault of their own. In their misfortune. Misfortune means that was the pressure that comes on somebody from outside. So, what James says is, here's the heart of it. Here's the heart of religious practice. What it ought to look like is caring for people who have no power and have no voice that it was stripped from them and if somebody does not speak for them they will not be spoken for and if somebody does not care for them they will not be okay now then the end of the verse which honestly I don't have the time to, to go through but I'm just quickly it says and to keep oneself unstained by the world at, at core you could summarize the whole verse to say what James says is here's the heart here's the heart of what it means to follow Jesus here's what it looks like once you've received the grace that comes through Jesus is that you, you begin to live outwardly and care for those who have no one else to care for them. And you care about having your soul pure and clean. In other words, you're trying not to add anything to it that's not supposed to be there. And that, again, obviously is a whole other message. It's you being truly you as made in the image of God and caring for those who have no one else to care for them. Now, the big question, of course, and it's the question that Decemberists pose is, Okay, uh, uh, bearing other people's burdens at one level sounds awesome. Sounds like a good thing to do, but within reason. I mean, let's be careful. I, I got my own stuff to deal with, and so I, c I can do a certain amount, and I can measure it out, and, and in certain times I can, I can do a little bit more, but I can bear someone's burden within reason. Just, just let's, not, let's not push this too far. I mean, and by the way, it's not my fault not my responsibility i'm sorry genuinely sorry that that woman is a widow i am i'm sorry that that child is an orphan but I, I didn't have anything to do with it you can't hold me to account i'm not accountable for their misfortune somebody else is or fate is or god is i don't know but it's not me what did i do why do i have to do anything about it we don't and it's, and it's not your fault maybe someday these words will ring in your head. You can do anything you want. You really can. You do not have to care about anybody. You certainly don't have to care about those that you didn't cause their problems. You don't have to. But you can. Christianity is different than we often think it is. Christianity is about nobility. Not about meeting the bare minimum. It's not about killing ourselves with service. It's not about having a whole checklist of things we've done. It's about the reality that we don't have to do anything, but we can. You don't have to care that somebody has nobody else to stand for them, but you can. You don't have to speak for them, but you can. And when you do, lives change. 
I'm going to go back to, which is often a good place to go back when you're making a case for something as a Christian, and that's Jesus. And so I'm going to look at two passages of, of, in the life of Jesus, just one verse in each. I want you to see something about his life. In Luke 15, the first verse, this is, this is a passage where Luke is one of the four gospel accounts, one of the four um, biographies of the life of Jesus. And in this one, Luke 15 is a very famous passage. And, and really, if you have even a, a, a small uh, background with the Bible, you'll, you'll know this. It has the passage of the prodigal son, you know, the son who went away and squandered everything and he came back home. And, but Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15 about things being lost and then being found. And, and he's trying to make a point. And, and the point comes out of this context. This is the first verse. This is the situation in which he says those things. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to him. And, and the next verse says, and, and the religious people, they didn't like this at all. They, thought they, they were essentially saying, Jesus, do you not understand what you got going on here? This is not a gathering you want. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if you're aware, but we don't like tax collectors. Now, see, this is what I want you to do. I want you to see something that's like, okay, so the orphans and widows, they, they didn't do anything wrong, seriously. They just, they're orphans and widows through no fault of their own. All right, maybe you care about them. Tax collectors, very interesting. This is what the ta tax collectors, we have no good illustration, no good uh, way to understand this. We, we don't have any comparative person. We say, oh, they're like this. They're not like IRS agents. IRS agents are much better. Yeah. The tax collectors were people who were selling their soul for the sake of an imperial power that had oppressed the Jewish people. They were working for Rome. They were working for the conquering forces. Sort of like working for Nazi Germany. Complicit with what they were doing. They were working for them, and they were robbing people. They were manipulating the system to get more money. And so they come hanging around. you got the tax collectors and the sinners, and Jesus appeared to be okay with that. And not only okay, he tells this whole parable, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, honestly, about the prodigal son. In this context... Here's why. Four chapters over, in one verse, in chapter 19, Jesus summarizes not simply what he's talking about in Luke 15, but his entire mission. And he says this. For the Son of Man, that's the way he refers to himself. It goes back to something in the Old Testament. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I, I know that verse without uh, any prompting. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I've known it for years. I can quote it to you easily. Most of you, I mean, if I work a little bit out, we could all quote that. It's very simple. One of the things I never did, I never took the time to explore what do they mean by the lost. I just assumed I knew. We all understand what lost means, right? I had it and I lost it. You know, I, I, I lost a dollar and now I found it. Oh, look, that's awesome because I really liked that dollar and now I have it back. I lost a ring and now I found it. We know what lost means. Again, language. Lost is a translation of multiple words in Greek. And what this one means is to lose something far dearer. In other words, it's often the verse, a word used in Greek culture when they talk about an execution. Somebody being killed. They lost their life. It's a word used for destruction. Something was lost forever because of what happened to it. It's better to translate not, I lost a dollar and then I found it, whoopee, whoopee, but to say this, I lost my courage, that version of loss. I lost something 
valuable to me. I lost my soul. I lost my heart. Something was taken from me, destroyed, that was valuable. And now it's lost to me. Jesus said his mission was to seek those who had taken from them what was most valuable. Who lost their heart, their soul, their direction, their life. That's who he came for. So his eyes scanned the world to look for those who were broken. And so, understand how I use this word, so ought ours. Say it one more time. Ought is a scary word. You don't have to do anything. Not a single one of us ever needs to care for anybody else, particularly when we didn't cause the problem. But Christianity was never about technical perfection and about doing the requirements. Ever. When I became a Christian and I looked at the life of Jesus, and this is true, I, I think, for many people, I was not compelled by his precision. I did not think, wow, this systematic treatise on how to live life is just so perfect. I didn't. Perhaps I should have, but I didn't, and I don't know many who did. What I found was I looked at Jesus, I said, oh my goodness, he's noble. His teaching is riveting, but I'd like to be like him. I don't think Jesus, he doesn't appear to ever look around at somebody and says, well, yeah, your life stinks, but I didn't do it. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. Not my problem, people. It's not my problem. I'll help out if I can, because, you know, I'm a decent human being. I'll help out if I can, but this is not my problem. I got my own. I think it's one of the common thoughts in our culture. And I don't know why it is. I think it's a variety of reasons from the speed of life and all sorts of things. But we tend to look at things and go, I, I, it's, not my, it's not my fault. And there's a certain sense where Jesus seems to look at us and go, oh, I don't get your point. Are, are they still a widow? Are they still orphaned? If nobody speaks for them, will they perish? I, I don't understand. What do you mean it's not your fault? Our call in life is not to fix the stuff that we mess up. And I know what you're thinking. That could be a full-time job. But that's not it. Our calling in life is to reach into the lives of people who are broken and have nobody else to care for them and care for them. Not because we have to, but because we can. Now, I want to apply this in a couple of ways and then hopefully bring together the thought that the Decemberists were raising. So what does it mean to care for those who don't have a voice? Well, th the most accurate, current demographic I can think of that fits the Old Testament or the New Testament version of the orphan and the widow are the homeless, or particularly homeless children. A six-year-old homeless child, it's not their fault. Now, you might argue, and I'm not saying you should, but you might argue that it's the parents' fault. And, and you might be able to point to where they were complicit and what they did wrong and, 
And so you could say, uh, you know, they got themselves into this, they should get themselves out. I'm not going to address that at this moment. I'm not going to address the fallacies that might be laden in that, but let's just move that off the table so we don't even have that as an argument and just look at the child, a homeless child. It's not their fault. I'm convinced. Six-year-old child who walks into our doors and stays overnight here, it's not their fault. Can't tell them to pick themselves up by their bootstrap. Can't say, hey, this is how life goes. You brought this on yourself. They didn't do anything. They don't deserve it. A homeless child, unless somebody fights for them, their situation will never change. We can fight for them. Every time we open the doors, it's it's why I love what we do with Family Promise. Every time we open the doors for homeless families and allow these children to, to live here, it's not us going, okay, check, we did some good stuff here. It's about the fact that a homeless child has no one to fight for them, and in a small way, we fought for them one day. And if we align ourselves with others who fight for them, not asking the question, is this our fault or our responsibility, but only asking, do we have the power to change their situation? Can we? Can we do something? If so, let's do it. It's easy I think, at one level, to go, okay, homeless children, you're right, okay, we should fight for them. But I'm, I'm fascinated by the concept of the tax collector. Why Jesus cared for them? Nobody liked them. I don't even think their mothers liked them. Nobody liked them. So why does he care for them? And he does, consistently. You know, one of his disciples, one of the 12, was a tax collector. Why does he do that? To me, they are the silently broken. They're the ones who walk by every day, and we forget that they're lost. That means that which is most valuable to them has gotten stripped away. That which they need most has been destroyed. They walk, tax collectors walked by people every day, religious people, good religious people. They didn't give them a second glance. If they did, it was to sneer. Somehow Jesus beckoned them in. They're the silently broken. They're the ones we pass by every day and we forget they've had stripped from them what matters most. Their heart, their soul, their relationship with God, their life. I was silently broken before I came to faith. You still might argue successfully, I am today, but I was clearly silently broken when I came to Christ. And and this is why. There's nobody who would have walked by me who would have said, okay, seriously, (laughs) gotta do something about him. Just on the surface, I didn't, I was uh, doing well in school. I was doing well in sports. I was in the relative high school scale popular. I was not terribly unfortunate looking. I I had hair. Long flowing. (laughs) And so nobody walked by me and go, oh my goodness, somebody needs to speak for that boy because his life is lost. But it was. And, And Jesus saw it. So did someone else. But Jesus saw it because he hears the cries of the silently broken. 
And see, this is the life we get to live. I'm going to emphasize how I said this is the life we get to live. Too often, we live our lives asking the question, what do I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do. Just give me my list, and I'll be satisfied. And and if you give me this list, I'll try to go, because I'm an overachiever, I'll try to go 10% more. But just tell me what I got to do. Here is the magic and the danger of following Jesus. You don't have to do anything. But you can be noble. It's not doing a little bit. It's not doing the minimum. It's not even doing the lot, a, a lot. It's choosing to be noble. It's, it's living lives like Jesus did, looking out at the world and saying, okay, they've got nobody to speak for them. I, will, I get to speak for them. I get to see somebody else's life turned around forever. Six-year-old child walks in here who's homeless. We get to change his life. And it doesn't do anything for us. Doesn't get you, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, it doesn't get you any more brownie points with God. Fortunately, you don't need them. It doesn't raise your standing. You get to live nobly. You get to speak for those that nobody speaks for. You get to put your hand on the shoulder of somebody's life that is broken. And that's amazing. How much, how much better is this calling than I get forgiven and I get a list of things to do that keep me in good standing. You know, membership in good standing as a Christian. You get to live nobly. I debated it and debated whether or not to tell you this. It's not a bad thing. It just, I, don't, there's a, I, I would prefer to tell you things that I'm bad at than I'm good at because generally speaking, that works better. But I'm going to tell you this anyway because I think it's important. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, seriously, I'm a, I, I, let's, just, let's just do the caveat. I'm bad at lots of things. Lots. I, I'm a good teacher. Like of, of college kids, I'm a good teacher. I am. And I've thought about why. I'm not the brightest. At every university, <laughs> every university, there are people that are light years ahead of me in terms of intelligence. I'm not the most organized. My lesson plans are not the most intricately detailed. I actually like the kids. Without trying. I like them. I like being involved in their lives, and, and they know that I care about them. Genuinely, I, I care about them. I, I care about how their life goes, their relationships, and how they do in school, and they're great. I, I actually just, I, I care about them. And that makes a difference. Because Lord knows we've had enough in a world of people asking us whether they've met the minimum standard of acceptability. And Jesus somehow burst through all of that nonsense, and he, sim- he looked at the tax collector and said, come on down. Yeah, I'll hang with you. I know nobody else will. Yeah, and I'm, even your mom, but I'll hang with you. He looked at the orphan, he looked at the leper, and he called him close. That's really how I want to live. And that's how you can live. You see, the power of Christianity is this. You, if you receive Jesus, are forgiven. Because this is what he did. His eyes searched through the world looking for those who were silently and loudly broken. And he saw you and I, and so he came to earth. And he saved us because he could. Didn't have to. 
could have easily looked at and said, not my responsibility. Seriously, he brought it on himself. He died for us because he could. Because he wanted to. Because he chose to change our lives. And so he did. And then when he calls us to himself, he says, come on, join me. This will be amazing. You're free. You're forgiven. Totally forgiven. Don't have to prove anything. Now let's go. Let's speak for those that nobody speaks for. Let's weigh into people's lives that are broken. Let's, let's have our eyes and ears open to what goes on around us because we can live better, higher, purer, more nobly than we thought. That's why we're called to be a voice for the voiceless. Not because we have to, because we can. Now, uh, as we go into this last part of our service, the band is going to do a song called Come Away. And as they do that, it's, it's a little different than some of the songs that, that we do. And, and this is how it's different. It's God speaking to us. It's not often our songs are us singing either to one another or to God. This is God speaking to us. And th this is what I'd like you to hear, particularly if you're in this room and you go, I think I'm the silently broken. I'm the one that everybody thinks is just fine, but somehow deep within I know something's gotten lost that I really need. Somewhere my heart and my soul has gotten lost in the process and I don't know how to find it anymore. You're the one that Jesus came for. To wake your soul again. To forgive you and call him to himself. And so as you hear this song, this song is thoroughly throughout the pages of the Bible, over and over again. Thoroughly the heart of God. Hear it as God speaking to you this morning. As we go into this part of the service, we do so, as we always do with our offering, which is a way for us to articulate the, the notion of this song. It is God who calls us to himself. And out of that, we respond to him and to the world around us. All right, a few things before you go today. Most of them coming up this week. Uh, this Saturday, we have a community social. Community socials are ways for you to gather in a group that's smaller than this, but bigger than a small group. It's a way to connect with uh, people. We've been doing them about every, every two, three months, and they've been in great ways for you to find connections here, develop friendships, relationships. And this one's going to be broken down different than any of the others we've had. We've done them all sorts of different ways. This is broken down sort of by age group, 20s, 30s, and uh, 40s and up. That's the contact information. If you want to go to one of those, you got to register by Tuesday, two days from now. And that's so that the host can know how many people are coming and get prepared for that. So you can go into our website, click Community Social Banner, and then go ahead and register for whichever one that um, fits you. It is a no kid event, just so you know. Again, we have others coming up, including a bowling night and hiking at Crowder's Mountain, which we remind you are not on the same day. May you walk out today knowing that thank God you are not called a technical per perfection. Your mission is not to get everything right. You were called to a noble lifestyle. You were called to be a being of choice that could weigh in in places where life change happens. May you know that Jesus, the Son of God, looked to and fro throughout the earth.
for those who were lost and broken. And he saw you, and he saw me. And so not because he had to, because he could. He chose to come to live and to die for you. May you know that the moment you receive that, from that day and every day forward, you have the love of God your Father. You have the grace of Jesus that covers over all of your sin. You have the presence of the Spirit in your life. Now go in peace.